Welcome to Good Game, your no BS insights for crypto founders. We invested in a company called Unlonely. The founder's name is Brian. Brian's a real character. The first time I met him, he had a camera strapped to his chest. And I was like, I'm going to invest in this guy because <laughs> very few people in the world. On that note, is it almost a necessary condition for crypto consumer founders to be like a little bit weird, edgy, like controversial? No. No. Dan Romero is like very buttoned up. He's extraordinarily methodical and rigorous in his thinking and is, is very impressive in his own right. Yeah. One comment I've learned of investing is there are many different ways to make money. There are many different ways to be right across different types of things. And you don't have to like all of the founders in your portfolio. You have to understand risks, opportunities, trade-offs, etc. Homogenizing is generally never a good thing to do. Looking for your next startup idea in crypto? Check out our request for startups list and get inspired at alliance.xyz forward slash ideas. Welcome to Good Game. Today we have uh, Kyle Samani on from Multicoin. We're going to talk about Solana Breakpoint and uh, some of the new consumer products that we're seeing. You know, it can range from stablecoin like products, payments, neobanks, some of the speculative consumer apps that we've talked about in our last episode, and uh, some of the new things that are happening on both Base and Solana. Before we get started, Chow, do you have uh, anything to add? Yeah, so I was uh, I was talking to Kyle the other day about the topics he was excited to talk about. Yeah. It turns out that uh, all these topics are also the topics that you and I are really excited to talk yeah. about. In fact, all of them we covered in, in, our, in our last five or six episodes. Uh, so it's a really nice coincidence. <clears throat> and the other thing I want to mention is, I'll just put this out there. Uh, I think Kyle is the most interesting VC in this space by far. And... I think Kyle is pretty much the only VC I've known personally who's able to think independently. So Kyle is really is really good. Um, so I'm really excited. Well, I'm flattered. Uh, <laughs> thank you. But uh, we'll respectfully disagree. There are a lot of other good independent thinkers out there. But yeah, excited that we have some shared interests and ideas. And uh, let's jump into it. Let's do it. All right. I ended up uh, watching uh, some of the videos on Solana Breakpoint, went through some of the threads that you were most excited about, Kyle. One that stood out over and over again was Jupiter. So I say we just talk, we just get right into Jupiter and uh, and talk about what the team has done, why you're most excited about it. I mean, some of the things that I'm most excited about Jupiter is, I mean, obviously it's a de facto aggregator, but the two interesting launches that I've seen recently was the uh, stablecoin backed by LSTs. And um, the perps, perps exchange, which I kind of didn't, I mean, in hindsight, it was obvious, but uh, didn't think about it. So curious to hear why of the five that you were excited about, Jupiter was one of them. Yeah, guys. So a few things I would distinguish. Um, I think most of the questions were, which talks did you like the most? Not which were the most interesting. I think those are two different questions. I'll say the most interesting is probably Tarun's talk on fee markets. And actually, I have a scheduled tweet scheduled to go out during this podcast reflecting that because I, I forgot to include his tweets during uh, my, my responses on the AMA yesterday. Back to Jupiter. Um, I mean, what I was excited about with the Jupiter talk was two reasons. One, it's a team that like they pivoted. Yeah, most people don't remember this, but they started off as Mercurial Finance. Yep. And they were competing against Sabre. And they decided to stop competing on that path and ended up pivoting. And I thought it was a, a sign of an amazing pivot. And then, you know, in the talk, he talked through all of the products they've they've shipped over the last 18 months and these guys ship i mean there's just a spectacular pace of iterating shipping listening to customers and, and continuing so I, I i just found that to be like a very good example of like a, a world-class team so that was awesome the other thing that stood out to me was the kind of move towards horizontal uh chow you alluded to this in a tweet recently or maybe in a telegram message to me and it's a theory we've also had internally for quite some time which is a, building out a lot of these DeFi primitives is not like going to take you seven years of like continual iteration to build out a single primitive. And so inevitably, once you build out your primitive, like, what are you going to do with yourself? And uh, the Ethereum community's answer seems to have been retire. But the Solana community's answer seems to have been like move into the next primitive. <laughs> and yep. the Jupiter team is doing that. And they're saying, look, we're at the top of the demand aggregation funnel. How else can we redirect that attention in an interesting way? They, they today, you know, have good market share for spot. And obviously, they're like, well, derivatives, let's see if we can route some some flow over to derivatives. So I think it was a very interesting strategic move. I can't say I love the GMX style derivatives model. I'm, I'm not the most familiar with it. So I don't, I don't want to go into all of all of the derivatives construction. 
but I can say that like I like C-Lobs. That is what I know I like for derivatives. But anyways, I just I love the team, their vision, their tenacity, they ship, they pivot, they're building, and they are taking their asset, which is customer loyalty and attention, and they're routing it in a productive way. I'd agree with you, but some of the Ethereum protocols are starting to go in that direction as well, right? Um, if you see Curve, they launch their own stablecoin. Uh, you're seeing that with Aave and others. So I think what's happening... And, and Uniswap from, launched like everything yeah. under the sun, including a, a mobile wallet, a, a NFT stuff, and, and they competed with Curve, obviously. Yep. They went horizontal everywhere. I think people I, are I will redact this. my retirement statement. <laughs> Thank you for correcting me. But it's probably like they're slower to realize it, right? Whereas with Solana, they can kind of see what's happening on Ethereum and then move faster, which is where I think Jupiter has the the, the maximum opportunity. And there's not a lot of competitors on, on Solana either. That's right. Yeah. I mean, they own their niche and there's not, I mean, the other derivatives players, you've got Bango, you've got Drift, you've got Jupiter now. Those are kind of the three. Yep. So Jupiter was one. Why don't we talk about Tarun's uh, fee market, local fee market? Yeah, so Tarun gave uh, a great talk on dimensionality of fee markets. And at first, actually, I was a little confused because I think today Solana is already the highest dimensionality of fee markets of all major L1s. Can you define dimensionality? What does that mean? The number of, of dimensions on which fees are charged. So on Ethereum today, you really have one, which is gas price for a transaction. Uh, with 4844 coming, that will become two. They'll have blob storage separate from a transaction execution. So it will increase the dimensionality of the fee markets on Ethereum. Solana today is already have a dimensionality across three, which is uh, compute, account storage, and a localization to the, to the piece of state. So fees are divvied up across those three dimensions. The primary subject of Tarun's talk is there are other, you can layer on multiple dimensions. Basically, the core theory is, let's say you have a single program that is in uh, Solana's local fee markets, right, are based on pieces of state. And if you have many pieces of state, then you can run all those par parallel. That, that's pretty intuitive. And I will go further than that. And I will say that is the only correct construction for fee markets in all of crypto. Tarun goes one step actually further than that and says, in addition to localization of fee markets, you should also introduce dynamic pricing per piece of state fee market. And so the theory is if you have just repeated people coming to hit the same contract over and over again, you can actually justify increasing the, the gas cost of that specific piece of state. Separately from MEV, you can actually internalize that to the gas execution. Right now, that gets externalized to MEV. And his talk is basically saying you can internalize it. Him and some others have written a paper on this, formalizing all of it. And he talks through the paper and the math a little bit in his talk. But I thought it was, it was super interesting and, and pretty compelling. And my intuition is that the net result of higher dimensionality is overall cheaper fees for the average. Correct. Yeah, yeah, correct. You're allowing the demand curve to form across different dimensions. Yeah. And this solves the, uh, like, one big problem that I see on Ethereum is that since everyone's using the layer one, everyone's affected by, by high gas fees, right? By localizing it, you're really giving that focal to the areas that need it. Kind of like, like demand for Uber, right? Yeah. Cor correct. Yeah, I mean, if you run with Tarun's logic here, a good example of this would be uh, how apps can make money. If you have an app and people are slamming your piece of state constantly, let's say you have a DEX, for example, if there's higher density of demand to hit your app per unit of time, I think that actually justifiably warrants the developer charging more fees. And so, you know, a very interesting way to design the system. One is you could do this strictly internally at the L1. It's doable. The problem with it is, there's always going to be weird idiosyncrasies in different market structures and different kinds of applications and how customers think about those things. What makes kind of more sense to me is to have some sort of configurability for de developers where they can say, look, as demand for my uh, contract or my piece of state um, increases, uh, allow me to specify how those increased fees route towards, let's say, the, the DAO or the app developer versus to the L1. I think there's going to be some interesting dynamicism that you can... Uh, implement there. Yeah, I mean, you could even use the extra fees to acquire new customers. I mean, cor correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, price discrimination is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, and this allows for price discrimination. Cool. What other areas were you excited about with Breakpoint? I, I saw Pith. Um, I also watched uh, the Fire Dancer talk, which I thought was very interesting. We could talk about that. 
state compression also was an interesting talk. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other thing that really stood out to me at the UI layer was Sling, which is a new payments app. Uh, the simple way to think of it is Crypto Venmo. That's incomplete, but you know, crude and directionally useful. And Sling is the single most beautiful crypto app I've seen. Like onboarding flow, gas abstraction, fiat in conversions, FX, everything. The team building it is uh, out of London. The CEO, Mike, was, was at Breakpoint. I uh, had a chance to sit down with him and talk. I don't know where this is going to get adopted. Like, It's not going to replace Venmo in America like or, or in Western Europe. I don't know where it's going to get adopted, but it, this is an experience that when you watch the, the demos that he has in the talk uh, and then you play with the app yourself, it's just absolutely spectacular. Right now, the app does have a referral gate code on it. And so if you want to use the app, the a code to use is Breakpoint. Funny enough, Imran and I were just talking about Sling an hour ago. And uh, what we said to each other is exactly what you said, which is this is the most beautiful payment app we've seen, but it's unclear if we get adopted in the US and Europe. And the thing I, I've been thinking about, the, the idea of crypto Venmo is that, I mean, sure, it, it makes sense. The idea of crypto Venmo makes sense, but the really hard part is the, the gold market. Where will people actually use it? People need a real reason, a compelling reason to use crypto to pay each other. And I personally find that to be unlikely to happen in the normal, like friend to friend payment situation in the US or in Europe. Because in the US and Europe, Venmo is good enough and Revolut, etc. But yeah, so very interesting uh, coincidence. Yeah, so Sling, Sling was just like absolutely outstanding. And you can go download the app in the App Store today and, and try it out. Use the term break, uh, breakpoint code. If you are in New York, unfortunately, uh, I think they're will turn on New York in December, January. But most other places, I think, are, are, are live now. I think it's uh, it's very interesting. I send money back to India quite often, and I use Remitly. And I used to use Western Union before. Uh, and it's a very, very, very tough process. Uh, there's paperwork involved. Sometimes they don't get it in time. I actually joined uh, Sling Money Slack group maybe three months ago, even before they went public, just to test it out so that I could try to solve this pain point that I have. So I do think there's an interesting element there if they could solve all the like issues that local, at least people in the U.S. that uh, that go through like the pain points of sending money back home. I think that could be a big problem, but that could be a great problem to solve. The only problem is that they don't support a lot of countries yet. So um, I think it's just Europe as of right now. I think that's right. I asked you on Twitter, what's your favorite top three favorite projects? And you said, uh, oh, I love all children equally. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but you already mentioned two uh, two children, um, Jupiter and and uh, and Sling. Um, what else? What else did you really like from? Uh... Well, a we are not investors in Jupiter or in Sling, uh, so we can't even say they're, they're they're children in the kind of colloquial portfolio sense of the term. Solana is our child, and and they're built on Solana, so they're your like. Uh, okay, uh, fair enough. I'd say the other one that I think is pretty under the radar relative to what I think it should be is Drift. Drift is a deriv derivatives dex for those who are unfamiliar. They have both a limit order book that runs on chain, as well as a automated market maker order book. And those are one contiguous whatever market. So uh, it's limit order book and AMM in a single system. Really powerful, supports multiple forms of collateral. It does all the things you would like a derivative system to do. I think Drift is, is I think it's the most underrated derivatives DEX in the market today. They've been iterating on it for several years. They made some mistakes. They learned from those. They have gotten up. The product is fantastic. It's super smooth. The team spends zero energy worrying about infrastructure, meaning they don't build their own chain or deal with any of that. And they don't deal with any of their own RPC infrastructure because teams like Helios and Triton and whoever else do a lot of other stuff. And so the team is 100% focused on product and customer acquisition. I think that is extraordinary that they have that privilege of having a performance set of read and write systems, and then they can just focus on application and their logic. Today, other teams get the majority of the mind share around their DEXs, and I think Drift is about to enter the fray in a major way. So, Kyle, you said something uh, interesting there, which is uh, they're able to focus on, on the product and user acquisition. I feel like if we had this conversation a year or two ago, like a year or two, or two ago, if I asked a Solana developer, they would tell me how painful it is to build on Solana. Today, it feels like a lot has, has changed with uh, Helios and, and others. Look, there's one thing is like Solana is just a lower level thing that's exposed than Ethereum. Solidity is a higher level language. And so it is easier to, to build for, sol for Solidity because of that. But that's not what I'm referring to. Um, when I say it's easy, what allows them to focus, that's really meaning you can kind of conceptually think of any of these apps as having three parts. One is the chain, two is the RPC infrastructure, and then three is all of the application specific stuff. And part of the reason we've, we've been so excited about Solana for so long 
is because we believe that the first two categories, application developers should not think about at all. And there should be abstracted tooling for those. The blockchain itself in the case of number one, and then RPC and the query providers in the case of number two. And the beauty of Solana today is that that market is now mature. I mean, whenever you launch a new blockchain, it takes a few years for the chain to be stable, to get all the bugs out. You just you have to solve all those problems. No one has ever launched a blockchain without problems, like ever. And then I was getting all the, the read infrastructure guys. I mean, we see this now, like, I, I hate to pick on people, but like Osmosis just had, the, you know, the Celestia launch and like all of their front end infrastructure fell over. And we've seen this happen time and time again with Arbitrum, with Optimism, with Solana back in the early days, all the, the NFT mints, right? Like, so this has been a recurring problem. And it takes a few years to get that infrastructure in place. And all of it's there now. I'll just contrast that with like DYDX. You know, this team has spent two years building their, their new thing. They've obviously made a bunch of optimizations that, that are only possible because of the decision they made to fork the Cosmos SDK and do their own thing. The downside of that is the substantial majority of intellectual capital inside of that team is now focused on chain issues and RPC issues. <laughs> and there are no other humans outside of that 30 or 40 people, whoever those people are, who are familiar with any of that stuff. And there's just, it's just a huge amount of distraction and energy and effort. And yep. Drift doesn't have to deal with any of that stuff. When I was listening to Breakpoint earlier, we had, uh, was Anatoly, he talked about being Solana aligned. Then you had um, Kevin Bowers from, from Fire Dancer Jump that talked about why scaling layer one is most important. And he talked about the infrastructure behind it, which we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. But then you also had a talk soon after that talked about how important it is for Solana to stay focused on scaling versus having to compete with Ethereum on like the modularity thesis. And I feel like all of that really is what keeps Solana differentiated compared to all of the other chains that are out there. So maybe just diving deep into what it takes for us to get there, right? Maybe an example is like Fire Dancer achieved, let's say, a million transactions per second by using their latest update on their client. And so maybe talking about why this is important and how you think this is going to be differentiated in the long run when we have hundreds and thousands of apps that are being both ran on Ethereum and Solana. Over a very long arc of human history, the, the thing that you observe is, is like we move to higher and higher layers of abstraction, right? Like you get in your car, you don't have to think about the pieces of your car. Get in a plane, don't worry about the plane. Obviously software, if you got a, you started a computer in 1980, it was a green screen kind of a thing. And then we got a UI and then we got the internet and then the apps got pretty and then we got mobile, right? And like it's become easier and easier to, to interact with technology. AI in some ways actually represents kind of the culmination of this, where the end goal of a lot of AI stuff is you no longer have to write computer code, you can write human code, and the AI will translate it to computer code and, and it'll run. If you have uh, not, never taken a computer science class, typically computer science 101, the first lecture starts off with kind of help, helping you as a person understand human language versus computer language, and the fact that human language is like the highest level language all the way down to, to binary um, at the bottom. I highlight this because I believe that the purpose of any developer platform over uh, long periods of time is to abstract complexity for developers so that you can allow developers, application developers, to move further and further up the stack and operate in, in higher and higher levels of abstraction. This obviously has been true for kind of sort of everything in software over the last 40 years. And I believe will be true for blockchains as well. One of my biggest problems with all the modularity stuff is creating complexity for developers. And you have different security assumptions with different data availability layers and bridging and I mean, all this, what, like all these things. And, you know, like even all of these teams claim that they are um, EVM equivalents or they have EVM equivalents, I think is the term. But like for whatever reason, if you deploy a Gnosis safe on them, you get with a different address for whatever subtle reasons in their EVM implementations. And like, that's like a huge problem, like already hundreds of millions of dollars have been lost because people assume they had the same address on three different EVM chains. Because they're the talking about the, the Wintermute situation with Optimism. Yeah, that they, they're, they're not the only ones. I think that's the most high profile example, but, but there are many others. So my point is, is like, I believe it is the first order priority of the core development system to abstract complexity. If you listen to Vitalik and Justin Drake talk about their priorities for the development of Ethereum, they will tell you very explicitly that their prioritization is to minimize complexity of the protocol of the L1. And they have, uh, given their goals and objectives, I understand their viewpoint. Their view is that the protocol must be World War III resistant and must be as simple as possible so that it never falls over and they can formally verify it. And you know they can have 84 development teams all have implemented client implementations. They all have to follow along. 
And like that, that is a way to think about the world. The problem with that viewpoint is you explicitly are externalizing complexity and you are externalizing cost to the outside world. Now you've got all the bridges and all this other shit I just talked about. The Solana team takes the exact opposite approach. Is they say, hey, we're going to internalize as much complexity as possible. And that way you don't have to think about any of this stuff. I look at Firedancer as the ultimate instantiation of this. The Kevin Bowers talk, you don't really need to listen to all 25 minutes of it. Like the first five or six minutes gets you enough. But in it, he pulls up a diagram of a CPU and basically says, you know, we've gotten all of these gains in parallelism over the last, whatever, 20, 15 years as Moore's law has died for single-threaded performance. And the problem with that is that, yeah, we've increased the total amount of, of flops on a given piece of silicon, but the silicon has gotten larger and you have to move the, if you have all of these cores now, you have to move the data back and forth between all of these cores and the speed of light has not gotten faster. And so with the primary bound in all of these systems, moving the data from each piece of cache or memory to each CPU core and back and doing all of that in real time. And so through that lens, and if you think about it, like literally no one who writes software other than like OS level people and kernel people and, and stuff, those guys generally deal with that class of problem. But when you go above you know, that level of the stack in software, you completely stop thinking about that class of problem because that, that stuff is extraordinarily complicated and two in the weeds and you just like can't do you think about application level logic and product and customers and also think about like the route of the electrons through the silicon those are like so far apart that no one really thinks about them there's no really one person who thinks about them and what fired answer represents is one person or one in this case one team thinking about both of those things saying we understand there are certain specific execution flows that we know we're going to repeat a lot, the most obvious of which is signature verification. And that's the point of Kevin's talk is he said, look, we can take the signature verification ED25519 and we can look at the shape of the silicon and we can design like using C, you can't do this with Rust, all right? Definitely let alone any other language. But if you go low enough in the stack, you can use C and you can control the memory and the registers and you can route the electrons in the V optimal way given the constraints of the hardware. And turns out by doing that, what we can kind of tell right now is roughly you can gain another 10x on top of the Solana Labs Rust client. Roughly. We'll see. Maybe it's 3x, maybe it's 30x. But the kind of, a, you know, the, the jump guys seem to be saying expect roughly 10x in silicon performance. Obviously, network performance is a different thing. But we can get a 10x gain in silicon performance. And if you think about that, that's pretty wild because... The Solana Labs Rust client is already, I don't know, 100x, 1,000x more efficient than the EVM. And like we're getting another 10x on that. But that requires understanding chip design and understanding like that. that's just a different class of engineering discipline and rigor. And quite frankly, I think the only firms in the world that have human capital on staff that think about those issues are HFT firms. Because if you don't have that human capital on staff as an HFT firm, you lose all of your money and die. And like that is the cost to compete in HFT is that degree of, you know, manipulation of physics. Couple comments. Uh, first on the HFT firms, where I, I used to be part of for, for seven years. Yes, you're spot on. These HFT firms are probably the best C engineers in the world who also understands the, the, the hardware. That's all they do. They, they optimize the, 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 at, the, at the very lowest level uh, of the stack, near the hardware level, to compete with each other, to reach pretty much the speed of light. Uh, when it comes to communication. So Jump is like the, the perfect par partner for, uh, for Solana. Second comment is the complexity on Ethereum. And interestingly, Imran, if you remember a few months ago, we, uh, uh, we talked about this. I, I made a really simple argument, which is if I were a new developer to this space and I see Arbitrum, Optimism, Polygon, Starknet, ZK Sync, I would be so confused. I don't know where to start. Like all these different names, different layer twos. And then there's a chain that's Faster, cheaper, and then only has one name, which is Solana. <laughs> which one would I pick? I mean, if I would need a developer, I would pick Solana, just for that reason. But Kyle, I also have a counter-argument, which is you can easily argue that Ethereum is the JavaScript of blockchain, which is, you know, JavaScript is, is a very shitty language, but it was the first language that was adopted by, by Netscape. And it just got so much network effect around it, uh, which is the situation of Ethereum today. So if I'm a new developer to this space, I would care about two things. One is the complexity, the technical com complexity, which Solana wins. And then I, I would also care about network effect, which is where Ethereum wins. So just, just putting the, the, the arguments and the counter arguments out there. So the, the JavaScript 
analogy is an interesting one. And there are parts of it that are spot on and there are parts of it that are absolutely wrong. The part of it that is spot on is that Solidity looks like JavaScript. And uh, Gavin and Vitalik have explicitly said, we designed Solidity to look like JavaScript. <laughs> um, so that that is not a coincidence of history. That, that was a design decision. So agree with that part. The problem where that analogy fails is in understanding the nature of the execution environments. JavaScript, the substantial majority of JavaScript code that executes in the world runs on a user's web browser. There's now Node.js, which obviously there are some servers applications written there, but the vast majority of JavaScript code in the world is, is client-side. And when you have client-side code running, you are guaranteed to get linear scaling, meaning if you increase the number of humans who want to download that piece of JavaScript code and execute it, you roughly increase the total computational load, computational capacity for executing all of that by roughly a million X because every single person by definition has a local CPU on their computer. <laughs> so you, you just like that you get that scaling naturally because there's separately physical piece, physically separate pieces of hardware that give you the scaling organically. A blockchain computer is not about independent people executing code. A blockchain computer is about shared state. And the point of the system is that the shared state is global and that anyone can touch it at any time. And so that's where the analogy falls apart, is the nature of the execution environment is, is fundamentally different. By the way, I, I agree with you. I, I wasn't drawing a, a technical analogy between Ethereum and JavaScript. I didn't say Solidity at all. I was just saying uh, Ethereum might be the, the JavaScript of blockchains. The, the analogy I was drawing was more the, the, the social aspect, the, the network effect aspect of it, which is, if I'm a developer, I want to see where the other de developers are in their own Ethereum today, at least most of them are. And I want, to, I want to know where the liquidity is. Most of the liquidity is, because if I were to build a DeFi protocol, I care about that. And most of the liquidity is on Ethereum. So, I mean, you could argue that Solana has what it takes to overcome the network effect of Ethereum. But yeah, I mean, this is the talk I gave at the Multicoin Summit. If you go to our blog and look at my talk, it's from like a month ago. I kind of talk about the specific term I introduced is called anti-network effects, which is gas costs. Excuse me. And um, like, if gas costs go up, it doesn't matter how many develop, uh, how many of your developer friends like like the product. Your your users can't use it. But we, we don't have to harp on this debate. <laughs> yeah. One comment that stood out to me uh, was the fact that you mentioned Solana internalizes a lot of things versus Ethereum, where which externalizes things. Right. So, an example of this is data availability layer uh, sequencers, layer twos. Yada, yada. And for Solana, what, what I found interesting was, you know, just like taking an example of compressed NFTs, where they have a validium that uh, Merkleizes the data and then creates a Merkle root and it stores it on chain. I mean, that's very cool, right? And so, like, just thinking more broadly, could Ethereum, with Vitalik's recent article, enshrining article, could Ethereum start to enshrine more of the things that they're giving out to the public, right? You know, maybe portal dank sharding is one of those elements, but I'm curious on how you're thinking about it. And if you were to give this advice to the community, what would that be? I mean, can they, like, can the Ethereum Foundation choose to in, enshrine is a strong word? Uh, that's a, that's a well, pre-compiles, right? Maybe. Yeah, but, but you know, I'm just going to say, can the Ethereum Foundation choose to internalize more complexity Yeah, or not? And of course they can. And, and whatever their decision has been historically, they can also choose to change their mind today and make a different set of decisions on a go-forward basis if they so choose. So nothing here is set in stone. Historically, their viewpoint has been, we don't really internalize anything that is like above the VM, roughly speaking. Um, I'm not sure that statement is perfectly technically true, but, but I think it's directionally pretty pretty correct. So things even like the ERC-20 standard was actually not done by the EF. Like, And I would contrast that with Solana, where they've said, look, there are a lot of things that look public good-ish that are not below the VM, at or below the VM in the stack, but that probably should be internalized by the L1 team. And there's a ton of examples of those. So the first would be the SPL token standard. The second would be the, uh, the staking contract. The third would be Metaplex and NFTs, which they then subsequently privatized and outsourced. And you can debate if that was a good or bad idea. Disclosure, Multicoin is investor in Metaplex, but that did come out of Solana Labs. Obviously, they did Solana Mobile and the SMS stack. There's now a whole team working on wallet, uh, specifically open sourcing all of the, the software layer of wallets and how that's exposed to, to developers. What else have they been doing? 
I mean, oh, compressed NFTs obviously is is more recent. They're introducing their token 22 standard, which is going to include Uniswap v4 style hooks, but for all token transfers. So you'll be able to define an SPL, a new SPL token, and have hooks at the entire token level, not just for hitting the AMM curve, but for all token transfers. Wait, so, that, so that's being introduced. I saw that tweet that you sent out, and mm-hmm. I, I was watching the video about it. So what does it actually do? So let's say that you have a hook and you, you do some sort of mint. It hits a program. What kind of program would it hit? And like, what would be the outcome or what could be built in this area? Yeah, so, so the, the hooks idea is you can, you can introduce a additional program that either must, must atomically run either immediately before or after some other action. Oh, okay. So in the case of Uniswap, the central action is hit the AMM curve and, and do the trade. Yeah. In the case of so what Solana just introduced with Token 22, it's actually going much, it's going lower down the stack and it's saying, we will introduce the ability to have a hook for all transfers of an SPL token. So you can create a new token and the most simple example would be, you must be KYC'd to move this token. There's a lot of other things to do and I, I can't say I'm following all the innovation around Uniswap hooks right now, but like conceptually anything you see in Uniswap hook land today, you could have that concept implemented not only at the AMM level, but at the entire token transfer level. So that's being internalized to SPL, confidential transactions, I can go on. But like coming back to the original question of, of enshrinement or, or not, you know, the Solana team has, has coming back to my, my prior rants a few minutes ago, they have decided to internalize complexity. And they're doing that at literally how the electrons flow through the chips level with Firedancer. And now they're doing that with the tooling that's exposed to application developers. There are pros and cons with that trade-off. The primary con with the Solana trade-off is if you do some of those things and if you broadcast to the community that you are going to do those things, that will likely turn off some community members from trying to independently do those things under a profit motive. So there's obviously some risk inherent to that. The flip side is most of the things that the Solana team has done have been things that you would probably call public infrastructure anyways and were unlikely to be independent profit centers. So these are subjective, but like that's roughly the way to think about it. My view as someone who thinks that like we need to maximize rate of innovation across all of these things, I have a very strong preference for internalizing complexity so the developers don't have to think about this shit. Yep, I'd agree with that. Even for us, like you know, we have to keep uh keep up to date with what's happening on Ethereum and and you know all of the other things like consumer apps and speculation, etc. It's just so hard to keep a track of all of what's happening. And there's going to be a point where these things are just going to become more localized. It's going to be harder for people to understand what's happening. So thinking more about uh, speculation, I know you and Chow had talked a bit about uh, speculative apps. And I think one that came up was Unlonely. I ended up watching some of the streams, so I'll, I'll give you my feedback, but uh, maybe just like like learning more about that space from your, from your lens. I don't know if I'm going to turn this into a blog post or not, but, but it's kind of an idea I've been, been playing with and we, we've been talking about internally, which is like, what is the core social primitive of crypto? And I think the answer is shitposting and trading. Um, <laughs> and, and those two things are combined, meaning not two separate primitives. It's could be those a are combined key, by the way. As, as one primitive. <laughs> this is a scientific definition and it needs to be in the dictionary. But no, like this is not a behavior that is universal to all people. It's definitely more common amongst men than women, for sure, by a substantial margin. I would guess five to one or ten to one, you know, you see it in men than women. But it is sufficiently common that it, I think warrants being its own primitive in the same way to look at Twitter, like Twitter's 300 million people of 8 billion. So it's, you know, four or 5% of the population that like, likes yelling in text format on the internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I suspect there's kind of a similar ratio of people who have a genuine enjoyment of the combination of shitposting and trading. I'm assuming it's, you know, between one and 3% of the population, which kind of feels right to me, then I think there's a really interesting opportunity to embed that primitive in as many places as possible. So one interesting and obvious place is a live stream. Um, we invested in a company called Unlonely. A little while ago, the, the founder's name is Brian. Brian's a real character. The first time I met him, he had a camera strapped to his chest. And I was like, I'm going to invest in this guy because <laughs> very few people in the world. Hey, on, on that note, is it almost a necessary condition for crypto consumer founders to be like a little bit weird, edgy, like controversial? No. no? Dan Romero is like very buttoned up. He's extraordinarily methodical and rigorous in his thinking and is, is very impressive in his own right. Yeah. One comment I have learned of investing is um, there are many different ways to make money. There are many different ways to be right across different types of things. And you don't have to like all of the founders in your portfolio. You do have to understand 
risks, opportunities, trade-offs, et cetera. Homogenizing is generally never a good thing to do. But anyways, just posting and trading. So yeah, we invested in Unlonely. And Unlonely, our theory when we invested, which was, I don't know, six, seven months ago or something, was social tokens are most interesting on top of a live stream because the creator can play games with the audience with the token. And that, that seems to have evolved too in kind of a V1 product is his live dating show. Actually, I forget the, the name of the show, but it's a live dating show. Love with leverage. Go, oh, there we go. Love with leverage. And two people are on a date and everyone in the comments is shit posting and trading on if there's going to be a second date or whatever. I'm sure there's other you know side bets going on. And like, honestly, that is the same thing to me as watching a football game and you've got a bunch of guys around the TV yelling at the TV. Like, this is the same thing. You could imagine future versions of The Bachelor that have this and maybe women will start to fucking shitpost and trade, you know, more like, I, I don't know. That doesn't seem too far fetched to me. Um, in five years or so, we'll see. But like, that's kind of the theory we've been operating on as, as the foundational primitive of social crypto primitive, which is shitposting and trading. I made a very similar analogy to Imran, uh, to uh, similar to what you just said, which is, uh, so the combination of streaming, shitposting and trading is the modern digital version of horse racing. So you, you said, you said the, the football analogy for me is horse racing. Right. Yes. Watch a horse race and then bet on it and, and then, and then talk shit about each other's horse. Um, but to your point, I, I love that. I, I love th- this, this combination because one of the most magical moments I've had, <laughs> I told you right about this is, so I'm, I'm really obsessed with uh, Jerome Howell. Like for me, he's, he's just, he's a meme. Jerome is a meme. <laughs> and, and I get a I'm, lot of memes from him, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And I loved him even more yes, yesterday when, uh, the, the climate protests, like, you know, that thing, like the protesters, climate protesters, they, they, they started protesting in front of Jerome while speaking. And then he's like, Close the fucking door. I fucking love that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, one of the mass- <laughs> he literally said it. Close the fucking door. I really appreciate the authenticity. But one of the magical moments uh, I had recently is um, I went on YouTube uh, one day uh, during one of the FOMC meetings, and they were live streaming uh, Jerome Powell speaking. And then the amount of shit posting in that YouTube channel was so fucking fun. Like. <laughs> Like I haven't seen that since like the Poloniex um, uh, troll box. Yeah, troll box. That was really, really fucking fun. So I can see that. I can see you know the combination of streaming, shit posting, and, and and trading really taking off. And I, I told you, I told you the, the so so like I told you, Kyle, that um, lonely is is the generalized version of uh, hamsters race. Yes, yes. Which, which happened <laughs> a few months ago when people were. Uh, betting on four hamsters um, racing against each other and post on Twitter. And then they bet, I think it was on BSC, right, Iman? It was, yeah, BSC. Yeah, it was on BSC. So people could like very easily use um, the stable, like USDC or whatever, um, BSC to, to bet on the, the races. That was another pretty magical moment. Yeah, people like to shitpost. And it's fun. You can make it a game. And so, you know, if you build on this logic, an interesting design space will be creating um you can call them sports you can call them events you can call them experiences you can call them shows but creating a content style so that you maximize the quality and frequency of betting in a way that is optimal for example like with football what's interesting is you've got how many yards is Tyreek Hill going to get in this game is the quarterback going to throw less than two interceptions you've got a lot of dimensionality for types of bets to construct it's actually not obvious to me that you want that degree of dimensionality. It just adds so much complexity. Maybe you do. I, I don't know. But I think if you want to build the experience that maximizes so shitposting and trading, you'll actually want to think about the core content and right what what is the surface area for for the betting around that. Paul, you, you also wrote about uh, you wrote a blog post on, on payment a few months ago, crypto payments. And then you also just talked about slang earlier. Uh, what's your current view? You know, which user segment, which industry do you think the use of crypto as as the payment rail could work today. So I wrote this blog post. It was actually almost a year ago. I think it was in December of last year. So it's been a while on, on payments. Basically, the, the core of the post was, hey, look, the, the places payments will emerge are the places where existing payment systems are insufficient or lacking <laughs> in some way. And so thinking about displacing Visa or UPI in India or WeChat Pay in China or whatever is silly because those flows exist. And so the question is, what are new forms of commerce that do not yet exist and that either must be on crypto rails because the commerce is crypto native by definition, or because crypto makes that new form of commerce possible for some reason. 
And so in the in the blog post, I talk about you know D pin. Actually, I forget. It's been a while since that post. That was so I don't remember all of the other things I highlighted. But but that's the gist of the post. Um, I'm, I'm sure the view has changed. So like, what's your what's your current current view? I don't think I don't think that I don't think that view has changed at all. I mean, you're not going to displace what's it called any existing payment rail in, in a meaningful way. I'd say one meaningful new insight we have. This is an idea we we've, we've just been throwing around um, internally fairly recently is if you're going to focus on payments for, for commerce, so buying goods and services, should that effort be merchant-led or consumer-led? As far as I know, every company in the history of crypto, going back to BitPay 2013, was merchant-led. Coinbase Commerce, there's been God knows how many others as well. Can you define merchant-led versus consumer-led? What, what does it mean to be merchant-led? Does it mean the product focuses on get, acquiring the merchants first? Correct. Yeah, this is this is saying you, you launch a new business or business unit of other company, and you say my I am calling merchants and getting them to download and install and set up my thing so that they can take crypto payments. And you can understand intuitively why anyone who wants to launch a crypto payments business would start merchant first, because if the merchant can't accept crypto, then how are they gonna? You know, how are crypto payments gonna work? So there's a kind of a fairly natural intuition as to why that has been the case historically. You even see this now, for example, Blackbird's one of our portfolio companies, and they're not like a payments focused company, but it, they're focused on this loyalty thing with these restaurants. But even them, like, obviously they can add payments in, but like they're a merchant led company first, like they're focused on restaurants. An idea we've been throwing around recently is should crypto payments be consumer led? And there's a couple of interesting historical precedents for this. The most recent of which that I can think of is actually Apple Pay. Apple Pay launched, I believe, in 2014 or 2015. And the timing of that was n not a coincidence. The Visa and MasterCard and the government and whatever, they had set some set of rules that said as of 2015, if you use the magnetic stripe on the back instead of the chip, that some fraud liability would shift to from the bank to the merchant as of some... It was like October 1st, 2015 or, or some date like that. I, I forget exactly. And Apple Pay launched exactly like congruent with that shift. And Apple's theory was, and when you updated your payment terminal to support the chip on the card, all of those terminals also supported NFC um, so that you could, you could do Apple Pay. And so Apple's specific timing theory was like, we're going to launch right then and there, and all the merchants are going to upgrade their terminals, and Apple Pay is going to be you know, a huge success. And turns out that theory was absolutely wrong because merchants just did not give a shit at all <laughs> about the fraud risk and whatever was, was being transferred over to them. I mean, most of them were, were ignorant, I'm assuming. The ones who were not ignorant probably upgraded. But like the vast majority were just outright ignorant. And what, what ended up happening is you may not if you remember, like for the first one to two years after Apple Pay launched, I would try and use it and some stores wouldn't take it. And I would like yell, I mean, I would be like at the cash register, like, dude, take Apple Pay. Like, what are you doing? You know? And what ended up happening is over the next 24 months, enough consumers did that with enough merchants that the merchants were like, oh, okay, like we need to upgrade our systems. And so I look at that as a, an example of a, a of a consumer-led payments innovation where the consumers put pressure on the merchants. The other example I can think of that fits this mold uh, is much further back in time, but it's, it's, it's the introduction of cards themselves, which is Visa in the 50s. Obviously, you had to have some number of merchants like sign up on day one to like take a card. But what ended up happening was not all of the merchants saw the newspaper articles about the bank card system and were like, oh man, I need to get a card system real quick. All the merchants were like, I really like having a green piece of paper in the cash register. And then consumers would show up and be like, yo, the, you know, Denny's over there takes a card. Like, please take a card. And after enough consumers like said that, the merchant's like, okay, I got to figure out this card thing. So bringing this back to crypto payments, the theory we're kind of rolling with is like, well, what if you need to make crypto payments consumer-led? And so the kind of question to make that possible, obviously, is, well, if consumer pays in crypto, but merchant does not accept crypto, then what do you do? And I think there is probably a big opportunity there in answering that question. I, I've been thinking about this a little bit as well. There, there's a trend I'm seeing is that there, there's quite a few startups that enable crypto holders to pay, but they don't do that by enabling them to pay USDC or crypto directly, but instead uh, issuing a credit card on top of their crypto holdings. And, and this might touch upon your, your new bank thesis as well. I think issuing a credit card on, on top of your crypto asset, it feels like the right way to do it because you don't need the merchants to accept it and you don't need the, the consumers to do much. Uh, the consumers already have their crypto that they want to spend and the merchants already accept the credit cards. How do you feel? Um, yeah, I mean, that's the, the obvious thing. The, the opportunity of doing this with crypto is to cut out merchant fees 
and to enable it to be fully non-custodial and interchange fees and a lot of other stuff. If you can figure out how to cut out all of those fees, then now you've got 250 bips of margin you can play with. And so the obvious thing to do would be to like basically build Amex and have a loyalty system and give some of that back to, to the consumers with rewards and points and cash back and, and whatever. If you can free up 150 to 250 points of margin, you, you have a tremendous opportunity as a new startup. Is this related to your new bank thesis? Can you talk a little bit about that? I think of it as, as different. I mean, I wouldn't say we have like a strong neobank thesis other than stable coins are growing all over the world, especially in emerging markets because people don't like shitty local fiat and they want dollars. Fun fact, dollars are the best form of money that has existed in human history. In fact, dollars in 2023 are the best form of money that has existed in human history for a bunch of reasons. Uh, and that's why people want dollars and not gold or Bitcoin or other shit. And so, I mean, we have a general belief that there's going to have lots of wallets that are ways for people to hold dollars in whatever countries they live in. Most wallet products historically have been designed for speculator types um, and crypto degen types. And almost none of them have been designed for having the perfect onboarding flow and ongoing usage flow for person in Argentina who wants to keep dollars away from the government, but still needs to interact with local systems on some frequency. There are going to be a lot of opportunities to build stablecoin first DeFi Neo banks for different geos. I think now is probably the time that those businesses become investable. I, I think about that as separate from the payments thing I just described. I mean, obviously, there's some overlap in these ideas, but I think about them as separate things. The, the reason why I think they might be related is because if you hold some USDC, some, some stablecoin, you want to earn some yield on it, use this Neo bank, right? You put, you put your dollars there and then you earn some 8% yield or whatever. At some point, you want to spend that money. And yeah. so, I mean, one way to do to spend the money is you transfer your stablecoin out of the new bank back to Coinbase, and then you off-ramp it into US dollar, and then you, you I don't know, US dollar or local fiat, and then you withdraw that into your own bank account, and then you spend it. That's a lot of steps. And instead of doing that, the new bank can just enable payment, whether it's through native stablecoin payment or, or issuing, by issuing a credit card. That's why I think they might be related at some point. Agree. There, there's clearly overlap here. I mean, it's weird that like we have, especially as Americans, we have your bank and then you used to have checking and savings. And now savings is kind of a weird concept that no one really pays attention to anymore. And then you have Venmo and then you have brokerages and Robinhood and then you have Coinbase. And like what you kind of realize is like all of these things start to become kind of sort of fun. It's like, why are they different? It's just like, it's just my money. The way I, I think about this is I think the base level of psychology for people is I have my investment assets and I have my cash. And that is a pretty clear psychological. I think like people fundamentally think about this pretty separately, but there's a lot of apps that do both, which creates app level confusion and brand confusion. And then even within each of those use cases, there are God knows how many companies focused on different subsections of those. And you see all of them converging. All neobanks over time recognize this fact and move horizontally into different functions. So counter argument, uh, two years ago, there were so many quote unquote crypto neobank projects. Like there was a point where half of the crypto companies that come out of YC were building a neobank. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. So so what what has changed? Why, why didn't it work? And what changed two years later? Well, I think most of those neobanks were just were just wrappers on top of Luna, <laughs> Luna Anchor, and Genesis. Yeah. So I mean, it's pretty obvious why they failed. And they were only serving one use case, which was just yield, and presumably mostly to Americans, I assume. I don't know if that statement's true or not. The opportunity for the next gen of DeFi neobanks is USDT first, probably, with a very strong and local geo focus. Um, dealing with USDT on Tron, by the way. It's, it's going to be on Solana, not too long, but for now it's on Tron. So going back to speculation a bit, there's a group of community members, VCs, whatever, and they hate speculation to the point where they preach to their founders that they should build you know, real products based on what crypto can offer versus gambling and speculation. And in fact, uh, some of our founders in previous cohorts are affected by it, meaning they, they hear this, they see what their friends are building in the AI space and they get affected, right? But in reality, I think you know, this is a crypto, it's crypto superpower, right? And uh, it seems like there's a pretty big divide. So I guess the question I'm asking here is, why do you think speculation is a superpower, superpower for crypto? And why should it be productized? Again, I would not homogenize this answer. This is going to 
be idiosyncratic depending on your, yeah. your product. Speculation can be a superpower or it can be an enormous distraction. Even for those who can intelligently leverage it as a superpower, it will feel like a distraction, will be in, in meaningful ways. Um, but that does not take away from the fact that it is a very special superpower that non-crypto natives completely do not understand. <laughs> I mean, the gaming world, I mean, the gaming world just hates crypto. I think the gaming world justifiably hates crypto, actually. Um, I really? Think okay. Because right. crypto doesn't solve a problem for them, at least not yet. But like, there are productive ways to channel speculation. The first and most obvious of which is, is Bitcoin is like, look, it, asset doesn't do anything, but the price goes up and that creates news. And news creates awareness and awareness eventually leads to more dollars buying it. And that cycle continues in perpetuity. As I like to joke with our founders, the single largest investment you can ever make in marketing is launching a token. Because when the price moves, people will write about it. <laughs> like right <laughs> it's, a, it's a real it's a very practical yeah, this, this is an absolute fact i mean this is a fact yeah, yeah like a fact. yeah that, that's one example of speculation being productive now that is most useful for bitcoin because bitcoin is inert doesn't do anything and whatever another example where it's very useful is deepin deepin is explicitly predicated on the notion of channeling speculation in a productive fashion y'all did a podcast a few months ago talking about speculation being good and I listened to the podcast and I was so angry. And I was like, fuck you guys. Speculation's bad and stupid. And, <laughs> and then I thought about it and I wrote a tweet being like, the one productive use case for speculation is deep end. So I'm, I'm glad that I, I got to that realization from your podcast. And I've since done a 180 and I now appreciate that podcast. But at the moment, I was very angry. And I think the third kind of major instantiation of speculation that I'm pretty excited about is shitposting and trading. Because yep. that, is ex that is explicitly the point. And that is part of the game. What I like about shitposting and trading, different from just like new meme coin launch, which can have its obviously its own shitposting and trading, I, I like it in a more um, defined context. Like, so the dating show or whatever, or a sports game, where like we all understand there's a thing happening and that's part, we, we are embellishing the experience, right, with shitposting and trading. And that strikes me as like a, a fundamental unlock for crypto. Carl, so um, just related to this, because uh, a few months ago when I was in Austin, you know, and I chatted about uh, Frentech a little bit before our, our pod on Frentech. And then we debated the, the, the merits of Frentech. But one thing you, you mentioned, you told me that, that, that stood out to me, which is that you, I'm paraphrasing, but you said something to the effect of the creator products, creator economies. Like you said, crypto does not really solve any problems for the creators, something to that effect. Can you expand a little bit on that? I still don't quite understand it. Yeah, actually, this, this comment is less a crypto comment and more a, a creator monetization comment. There have been in the last four years, I mean, probably no fewer than a thousand startups that have you know, raised money, some, some amount of money to focus on creator monetization in, in various ways, shapes and forms. Some horizontal, some more vertical, whatever, different geos, etc. I'd say of those, probably 10 to 20% of them like leaned into crypto, maybe 30% even as part of their solution, either for the payment rails or for some speculative social token or something else. And I believe that all of them are destined to fail because they are not diagnosing the problem correctly. The reason creator, there feels like there is some injustice in the world that creators are not making enough money. That's the fundamental reason why all of these businesses exist, is there is some perceived injustice that the creators do all of this amazing work and they're not monetizing it sufficiently. And I believe that core premise is wrong. The most competitive market in human history is the 2023 competition on the internet for attention. Because at any point in time, you could type in another website into the URL bar and go do something else, whether it's Netflix or YouTube or TikTok or whatever. And so creators are competing by definition in the most competitive market in the internet. Uh, excuse me, in, in human history. And so I fundamentally don't feel bad for people if they choose to compete in the most competitive market there ever was and then don't make as much money as they thought they would. That does not surprise me. And so meta comment A. Uh, comment B, a lot of the anger around that injustice is is channeled at the aggregators, TikTok and Instagram being the, the two largest in, in YouTube. And I believe that is, again, fundamentally unwarranted Given that you are operating in the most competitive market in human history, the people who aggregate consumer attention are rightfully the ones who should make money. Like it turns out all content is, is pseudo fungible. Tick, this was the key insight of TikTok. You open TikTok and you don't know what the next video is going to be. But for the purposes of entertaining you for the next 30 seconds, 
any piece of content is roughly fungible because they're serving the same job to be done. Obviously, not all content is perfectly fungible. I don't mean to be that extreme, and that's obviously incorrect. And there are certain pieces of content that are that are very distinct. I'll take Stratechery as an example. Stratechery is like a very distinct piece of content. Good Game is less distinct than that in that there are other good crypto podcasts analyzing these kinds of issues. They all are pretty good and pretty distinct. But like, there's also other podcasts that are like similar-ish, right? And then like, there's like you know, guy making dancing video at home. Like, dude, there's fucking twenty thousand people who make dancing videos at home, and the TikTok algorithm can discover them every day, right? And so that's actually that con- those twenty thousand people are effectively fungible. And so when you recognize the the fungibility of content, that would explicitly devalue creators and value the aggregators, and that is in fact what happens, and that is the correct outcome given the reality of the market structure. If you are going to do the creator monetization thing, you are explicitly competing for consumer attention against TikTok and Instagram for discoverability. And that means every time a consumer is otherwise going to open TikTok or, TikTok or Instagram, they have to open your new app instead. And that is turns out to be just extraordinarily difficult to do. Yeah. Basically, no one has been able to do it. But the best way to capture attention in this case, especially if you're competing with everyone, is to speculate, right? Speculation is a, is a, is a very orthogonal vector to compete on and one that the incumbents are quite unlikely to embrace. So it's an interesting theory. I don't think anyone has, has done it well yet. It's plausible that you can you know, make it work. For the right kinds of content and for a different experience, it can make sense. You know, TikTok and Instagram are very brain-dead experiences. It's just you open it and whatever the algorithm says you should look at, you should look at, right? And like people joke about TV and like, I think what's like the very antagonistic term for a pejorative term, it's like you're a couch potato or like the TV rots your brain or whatever. Yeah, this is like uh, you've heard those comments before. If you just take it on lonely as an example, on lonely is is less brain rot e than TV, just because there is some interactive component. Yeah, it is not a strictly one way function. It seems like most people want one way functions, and it turns out they want to be brain dead and just just consume without thinking. But maybe I'm generalizing, and obviously these things are path dependent and a function of culture and what you grow up with. So we'll see as the next generations, you know, grow up and they have more exposure to something that looks like on lonely how much more interactive does it become? To me, it seems like crypto enables more social activity with speculation. So a few examples I'll give you here. Um, if you're, Have you followed Base Paint? I know what it is. Um, I can't say I'm like following it closely. Yeah, okay. Just a, an open canvas where artists get, they get together and they paint the canvas. People watch, then they can mint the actual NFT. There's something called the world's largest trailer. It's like a video people watch. You can mint the frame and then you hold on to the frame. You get points. The points you can redeem for things. Senko uh, Game Corp or Senko TV is another interesting element where you, it's on Arbitrum. You buy a key of a creator and then you get to get a private access to their live stream. You can, in fact, buy stickers in ETH for the creator. And then there's a troll box where you could talk to other people and then like engage. In fact, I didn't even know this, but Senko TV that launched about a month ago, one of their streams got up to 2,500 gifts, netting like 1.3 ETH, which I thought was interesting. And so it seems like a lot of these applications that I told you about that revolved around speculation also indirectly revolved around social activity, which I thought was uh, an interesting uh, insight that I got. So your first statement was crypto makes people more social or, or, or something like that? Speculation. Well, with crypto, crypto rails, if you build the right product on crypto rails, it should enable speculation, which also should enable some sort of social coordination or activity. Yes, I agree with that, which is shitposting and trading. Um, and it doesn't yeah. have to be strictly shitposting, but like base paint, I, I haven't been on their forums or their chat boxes. I'm assuming it's less shitposting and, and probably more like yeah. a productive dialogue about the art. Yeah. But yes, th- there is some form of asset or some form of, of outcome or event that lends itself towards discussion. That is clearly true. Is that use case, um, how, how big is that demand? Well, well in, sorry, in, I agree with you. In the world of couch potatoes, right? Could this be the antithesis to couch potatoes? Yes, possibly. Making content more interactive. I yeah. mean, I, I think generally, look, I'm a millennial, I'm 33. I grew up with TV, but I also grew up with video games. Um, but it was primarily single player. And, and actually, when I was in high school, multiplayer became you know, fairly large. Call of Duty, Gears of War, FIFA, that kind of thing, Halo, whatever. You know, today, I, I don't the kids are experiencing Roblox and Minecraft and whatever else, you know, Fortnite, which are much larger 
group settings. So I, I do think kids' brains are are fundamentally wired in a different way than mine and certainly than my parents. And so I think the opportunity to have more interactive media consumption, uh, clearly, clearly that's a thing. That That's not a question. There are different kinds of consumption that if you layer on this financial angle or speculative angle, become better. Again, that will clearly be true for some classes of, of content, um, but certainly not all. Any other areas that you want to touch on that we haven't touched on yet? What were we talking about in our Telegram chat ahead of time? Oh, uh, Filecoin and um, I guess the my wall art. <laughs> uh, let's do Filecoin. Okay, I'll give you my, my view and then a very quick view and then uh, I'll, I'll let you destroy it. So my view is uh, Filecoin still feels like a very early stage R&D product. I've seen some numbers, some trashes. They look like it's growing. And apparently there are some users from the academia that are storing their, their stuff on, on Filecoin because it's cheaper than like AWS and etc. But at the same time, I, I spoke with uh, some of the competitors of Filecoin, especially um, David, who, David Vorek, who built uh, Sia. Obviously, David is, is biased because he was a competitor to Filecoin, but his comment was that Filecoin feels like a science project for Fun So I don't know how you feel. Um, do you see anything meaningful that's being built on Filecoin right now? Yeah, so um, I think the characterization of, of it as a science project uh, has elements of truth to it. I, I don't think it's outright false claim. I don't think it's correct either. We invested in Filecoin about a year ago because we started getting excited about the launch of the FVM, which launched uh, in, in March of this year. In the one year since we've invested, I can say a few things have meaningfully improved. And then there's a handful of things that have not yet meaningfully improved. The things that have meaningfully improved are, one, the FVM launched. And the first thing that has really started to grow on the FVM are Filecoin native capital markets. For those who aren't familiar with how Filecoin works, if you are a storage provider on Filecoin, you have to have some fill that you can pledge as collateral before you can store any files to earn more fill. And so there's a bunch of teams that are working on Filecoin native borrow lend markets where you can you can actually use as collateral for a loan your future fill mining rewards. And the smart contract will enforce the, the loan repayment from those, which is a very cool idea. So there's a few teams working on that. And that, that market is, is a functional market today. There's no good drill dashboards on it yet because the FVM, like there's no Dune and other kinds of things on top of the FVM yet. But I think there's roughly 10 million fill, maybe 20 million fill in those markets now. And it's, it's growing nicely. So that started to happen. The other thing that has meaningfully started to work is there are now a handful of pretty competent, well-functioning teams building aggregators for the Filecoin network. If you go back and read the original Filecoin white paper, they actually explicitly talk about an on-chain C-log. And there's the green and the red bar charts, and it's, it's all in there. That does not exist today and is a while away from existing. The C-Lob, in, in some sense, represents the perfect end state of the market. That, that's like the perfectly efficient market where everyone's just quoting prices and you know spreads are being crossed and, and whatever. Before we get to that point, we need to just have people who can aggregate all of the available supply and understand, hey, how much supply is available with what parameters? And then you need to be able to aggregate demand and just say, hey, here's an S3 compatible API like you know, just set what, how much do you want to store? And you need to have those APIs available to aggregate both sides of the market. There are a handful of teams now, such as Bandian and others, that are pioneering that work and that they have functional services now that are aggregating those things. The Filecoin network turned three last month. So, you know, should it have taken three years to get to the point where you have some supply and demand side aggregators? Clearly, no, that's, that's obviously the wrong answer. So the network has been slower to progress than it should have. And that's why I did not like Filecoin for a while. I hated Filecoin before it launched. And I hated Filecoin for the first two years after it launched because I, I understood a lot of the core criticism of science projects. It is changing. And I th it's going to be a, a slowly then quickly kind of a thing. I think probably at some point next year, all of the pieces with the capital markets, the CDN, which is called Saturn, which is launching pretty soon, and the supply and demand side aggregators will all be in a position that they all work together and, and you actually have a pretty elegant system. What is uh, an application that can be built on, on Filecoin that's not possible to, to be built on Ethereum or Solana? Only possible on Filecoin. Solana and Ethereum are asset ledgers. They keep track of who has how many tokens. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that is all that they do. Filecoin happens to have an asset ledger. The first asset it tracked was Phil, and now with the FVM, actually, it can track arbitrary assets. I think it is quite unlikely that Filecoin will compete with Ethereum and Solana as general purpose asset ledgers. But then obviously the other nice thing Filecoin does is it stores large files. 
um, which Ethereum and Solana definitively cannot do. The simple, although incomplete way to think about Filecoin is it's just AWS S3, which is not wrong. And so anything that needs storage is the target customer. I don't think there's going to be Web2 customers who are using Filecoin in large scale before Web3 customers. Just like it's just too weird and different and looks funny and, and whatever. But there are Web3 customers that are starting to produce large amounts of data that need a place to store it. The most obvious example of which is, is HiveMapper. HiveMapper today, you've got 10, 11,000 dash cams driving around capturing whatever f- pictures per day. I mean, it's actually producing a pretty substantial amount of data. I don't know if HiveMapper will use Filecoin or not, but like they are the like perfect case study example of, the, of a crypto team that should use Filecoin. Farcaster stands out as in Lens and all those guys stand out as, as examples where clearly they're producing lots of, lots of images and videos. So I believe those will be the first large customers of Filecoin that are consumer applications and not like archival storage type things, which is a very different kind of a customer. Cool. I think we're at time. Um, Kyle, it was uh, great having you on. And if you have any final thoughts, feel free to add before we tune out. Pleasure to be on the show, guys. Love the Good Game podcast. It's, it's one of my favorites. So thank you all for launching it and uh, having captivating uh, conversations. Thank you, Kyle. We'll have you on again soon. Appreciate it, guys. Take care. Yep. Later. Thanks for listening to Good Game. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next week.